0: are you interested in free theological training our flagship sponsor midwestern seminary offers free theological training through their for the church institute this semester they launched three new classes new testament one and new testament two with dr patrick schreiner and missional leadership with dr charles smith both have been guests of the show These classes, along with others, they offer the story of everything with Jared Wilson, the Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out.
1: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
0: This is Kyle Whirland. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, y'all. Hey. 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 Well, um, okay. Here's something I discovered a hymn that I like a lot. And it made me think, it's been a long time since we've talked about this, but what's a hymn that you really, really, really like? Or maybe a hymn that you like that's not as common for other people. I'll give you mine while while you guys have a chance to think. I uh, recently discovered I heard the voice of Jesus say. Mm. I have never heard this hymn. Have you guys heard this hymn? I don't
1: know if I'm familiar with that one. And I that's a point of pride for me to know many hymns. Oh, I is know this that's a gospel why I,
0: hymn. No, it's not. It's like a like a very traditional, I think it's Celtic in origin. It was written by Horatius Bonar, That that guy. He writes a bunch of other mm-hmm. hymns. I don't know a bunch of I don't know a, a, a much about hymn history. But uh, anyways, it is really, really good. And I feel like I found something that like Like, I know that I found something that's not out there a lot whenever I Spotify it, and there isn't any Uh contemporary worship bands or like Shane and Shane or somebody who's been like, oh, we're going to cover that hymn. And it's really good. What's a hymn that you know that when you tell people it is meaningful to you, people are like, what are you talking about?
1: Like he knows it. Well, every time I teach in the training program, they just is like a just to be kind to me and make me feel seen, they sing Immortal Invisible. And it I is I love that hymn though. But it's terrible. No one knows it. Nobody you knows know it. it now because I have forced it upon you. But no. like no one knows it. And so it sounds like a bunch of cats yowling the whole time. And it's a it's usually someone on a guitar who's tried to pep it up a little bit. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, oh, guys, yeah. don't. So that's really sweet.
0: I remember the first time that you did that in the training program, I was there. And it was (laughs) crickets. It was so... It was me singing a solo before I taught. It was really like, I think people thought you had written it that afternoon. Like, hey, I got this. (laughs) I don't know that I have one that people
2: like the one the one that I'm thinking of. I think most people know, uh, but it's still my favorite. "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God." I yeah. have told Macy at least at this point, like if you're planning my funeral, let's sing that song. I just yeah. love it. But I feel like I feel like it's either really well known in some circles or not known at all in others.
1: Really, I feel like I walked down the aisle to that at my wedding. Did
2: really?
0: you really?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's I a did. real power move. That's hardcore, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. What well, I mean? Of course, Coldplay so, hadn't come around yet, so you didn't have Coldplay as an option. Yeah, yeah,
1: Oh, okay. So at Claire's wedding, you guys didn't get to be there, which is totally fine. You were off having your bro trip in Israel, and um, I'm joking. It was really fun seeing you guys have a good time. But um, we, Claire, another hymn that our family loves is "Praise to the Lord, the Almighty" mm-hmm. by uh, Joachim Neander, and so she she wanted it. She wanted a congregational hymn at the wedding, and so we were all going to sing this, and she had all five stanzas printed in the, in the handout that everyone received, except not everyone picked it up, uh, which happens at weddings. And then um, they had hired a string quartet to play during the ceremony, but I'm pretty sure that the string quartet, while very gifted Maybe didn't love Jesus, had definitely never heard the hymn before, and started playing it like at dirge speed. I mean, it was like praise to the. (laughs) Oh, Lord, it just, it went on. And I mean, we got about uh, two lines in and we're all looking at each other like, we are going to be here until tomorrow singing this (laughs) hymn. And so it's like, Claire apparently is facing them and is like, you know, keep it moving, speed it up. And the dude just blew her off. And it went on for days. And Micaiah looks at me and then we just lose it. I mean, we were laughing so hard. (laughs) And so now anytime we're all together and something good happens, someone strikes up a really slow rendition of... the first line
0: I it will be that. with us forever i love that we,
1: i mean it was it was hilarious
0: oh man jen you brought up israel uh and jt brought up a mighty fortress as our god so we have not told many israel stories but here is one from our <laughs> <By trip>. designer <laughs> well we just there is an odd man out in the audience the israel <laughs> um Okay, but while we were so at Claire's wedding, which we were not at, we were in Israel, and one of the things yeah. that we did was we went near the pools of Bethesda, and there's a church there called Saint Anne's Church, and the acoustics are like unbelievable, like it's like uh-huh. like it's kind of internationally known to be a church a church built for Gregorian chants, and like the acoustics are unbelievable, so everybody sings in this church next to the pools of Bethesda. Like, so,
2: you, like your group waits for their turn
0: to sing, like yes. your. Uh huh. Yes, it's a thing. So oh, I've we,
1: seen vi- people post videos of this. A
0: hundred, definitely, you have. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's and it's beautiful. Like so many of the churches there, it's 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 unbelievable. It's a beautiful church. So you we walk in, and you're in a. It's a Catholic church, like ninety percent of the yeah. churches in the Holy Land. Yeah. And so everybody's singing, and we get up there, and. Uh, our group has an opportunity to sing the doxology. We sing it three times cause we're good Trinitarians and we sing the <laughs> doxology. And then when we're done, the first thing that JT turns to me and goes, he goes, wouldn't it have been hilarious if we had just sung a mighty fortress is our God in this Catholic church right next to the pool of Bethesda. <laughs> That's the first thing he tells me is like, he, he was like, and we could just like stick it to him. And I was like, uh-huh. man, unbelievable. Like JT, that is, that is on in brand. My pocket. That's I was on ready brand. to go. He, JT, he never turns off yeah. jt Austin, through through. It, and, <laughs> it's just it was really yeah. beautiful yeah. and well, we well, should have seen this is, is
2: right before us kyle i don't know if you noticed this but the group that was right before so we were like in line and we were yes. kind of trying to get we had like i don't know 40 people there so we're trying to get mm-hmm. people you know it's hard to we're like herding cats through yeah. israel and some people had gone to go see this painting and we're getting them back and we're trying to get up and right before we get up another group gets up right in front of like they obviously like butt in front of us did you notice this kyle were you there yes for this? yep uh-huh and they sang amazingly. Like it was this, mm-hmm. I forget what they yes. sang, but it was a be- like they sang so well. It was And I asked them what church they were from and they're a Mormon church. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: Those Mormons, they got they pipes. Yeah. yeah
2: they, they know how to sing. The Mormons yeah, don't know the theology, but They man, know the hymns they... better
1: than we do. That,
2: yeah. that's, that's not true. right, guys. That's right. They do know the hymns better right. than we do, but
0: not the gospel. Mm-hmm. So we'll just mm-hmm. keep on keeping on. <sighs> there we go. There we go. Well, uh, today we are talking about Exodus. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Exodus. Today, we're focusing in on a small portion that really has a disproportionate impact over how we think through this as a theme. The, the passage we're looking at today is only really a few verses. When you when, when you think of the whole narrative of Exodus, you might wonder, there are going to be some episodes where we're covering three or four chapters worth of content in 30 minutes, and we, yet yeah, we're giving a whole episode to just a few verses here. Again, the goal this season is not for us to do a deep dive kind of line-by-line line study on Exodus, but to explore themes that both kind of ripple before um, the book of Exodus in Genesis and after into the rest of the story of Scripture. Um, and uh, I, I I was talking about this with somebody else, and I was using this word ripple, and I used it in some of the first episodes, and they're like, what do you mean? And when I think about this, it's like some of these biblical themes are small rocks that get thrown into the pond. And just like a small rock creates small ripples. It's not that it has no impact. It's just that sometimes the impact is relatively small, but you throw big rocks into a pond, and those ripples extend much further out. They both create impact. Every line of scripture has impact, both for the whole story and for our lives as believers. But thematically, there are sometimes smaller rocks and bigger rocks. And the passage we're looking at today is a small passage, but it is a big rock into the pond of scripture because it's exploring the doctrine of covenant. It's exploring what covenant love is. And this is crucial not only for understanding what comes before Exodus, what comes through the story of Exodus, but what comes after Exodus. And so we're going to look at covenant today. We're going to spend a little bit of time tracing that as a theme, both before and beyond Exodus. So I'm going to look at Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, and I'm going to read this passage for us. And then we're just going to Explore a little bit together as we think through Exodus. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So, in these few verses, it gives us a sense of okay, there is something that has come before what we're reading here. And so I want us to just start here. Could we maybe recap really quickly for the listener, what has gotten us to this point? Where, where are we at here? The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. That's not where they started. How did they get here? And why is this significant? Maybe JT, tell us how they got here. And maybe Jen, tell us why this moment here is significant. And then we'll kind of start diving in. JT, how did they get here?
2: Yeah, maybe without getting to like the theological idea of covenant yet, but just trying to kind of tell the story is, 30 seconds or less, God has created a people for himself, for his glory. He makes Adam and Eve, and He, if the language that we use in the environments that we teach is there's some really significant ideas that he is present with them, they are his people, they are in his place, and they're called to live out his purpose. So four Ps, presence, people, place, and purpose. And the idea there is that they're living in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and they're meant to, their purpose is to extend the glory, the beauty, and the majesty of God to all of his creation. Or another way we could say it is, is they are going to image God by creating order where there is chaos, and so they're meant to image him and take His, uh, be his representative to all of creation, but instead of obeying his commands, they disobey his commands, and one of the major themes there in Genesis chapter 3, uh, in our kind of Protestant evangelical world, we can think specifically about things like total depravity and original sin as we should, as because uh, we, we want to believe in, we, we should rightly believe in justification by faith, but another major theme that we're going to see here in Exodus that is also present in Genesis 3 is exile. They're sent out Mm -hmm. of the presence of God. They lose the presence of God. They lose the purpose of which they're supposed to be living. Uh, And they are still his people, but they're now living in a fractured and broken world. And so the story of Genesis, really from Genesis chapter four, moving to Genesis chapter 11, is this story of of, uh, fragmentation, of humanity kind of collapsing in on itself, of death and uh, deceit and crime and, and, and a lack of what the kingdom purposes of god's creation are supposed to be so i want people to th- like like cling on to these two the, these two bookends genesis 1 through 3 is a story of covenant in some sense which we're going to come back to and genesis 12 1 through 3 is also a story of covenant of god saying To a specific family, I'm going to recreate my kingdom through you. This is Abram and Sarah. And he says, you are going to be a blessing to all people. I'm going to give you a place. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be present with you. And you're going to live out my purposes. Those four Ps that we also saw in Genesis 1 through 3. And despite their brokenness and the fracture of the relationship between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the destruction of that family, God has created a covenantal people for himself. This this family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that is going to take the beauty and the glory of the Lord to the ends of the earth. But when we open up in Exodus, this family, because of a famine, is now in Egypt, kind of living out the same exile that Adam and Eve had lived out in Genesis chapter 3. And really, God's people, as we're going to see here in this passage, are crying out, wondering, is God going to fulfill his covenantal purposes to us? Will we be his people in his place with his presence, living out his purpose?
0: That's right. That's right. I've been reading a lot about, that was really good, JT. I've been reading a lot about space and watching a lot of stuff about space. And when you said cling on," meaning hold on to, all I thought about were Klingons from Star Trek. And I had a second where I was like, whoa, where is he going with this? Okay. Anyways, just as an aside, that's a confession for the audience. If you ever feel distracted, I'm also distracted. So Jen, back to you.
1: I don't think I knew you were a Trekkie. We're going to have to talk I'm not later. a
0: Trekkie. I've only been watching it recently because I feel like, Oh, uh, well, we don't need to get into why I'm okay, watching we'll Star Trek okay.
1: <clears throat> Or which generation of Star Trek you're watching <laughs> sure. and all that. Okay. okay, so I'm fine. We can keep <laughs> moving. So um, when the scene that we just um, heard is actually is is playing out during a time when, when Moses himself is in a time of exile. He mm-hmm. has, um, he struck down the Egyptian and then he's fled to Midian. But um, where we are in the story of Exodus is, you know, everybody knows the story of Israel being liberated. Uh, but what we see before that 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 big story is told is a small story that kind of is a spoiler alert. It gives away the whole plot. Um, You have two uh, witnesses who shake their fist at Pharaoh. They fear God more than Pharaoh. Then we see that in the Hebrew midwives. And then we see the baby Moses who is delivered... <clears throat> through, um, blood and water is his natural birth is the, is blood and water is his deliverance through the Nile. Um, and he's raised up to new life on the other side of the Nile. He cries out and he is brought into the home of the King into the home of Pharaoh. Uh, and he is trained up in the ways of, um, of Egypt, as we find mm-hmm. out uh, in the New Testament, right? And so um, we're now going to see that story play out on the big screen. We saw it on the small screen in, in one sense, and now it won't be the the narrative of Moses being delivered. It'll be the narrative of the newly birthed nation of Israel, who, as we see in this scene, has already begun to cry out. Mm-hmm. And just as Pharaoh's daughter um, saw and heard and acted, God is now going to see and hear and act on behalf of his children. But we also have, have this term here, it says, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. Yeah. Anybody got any thoughts about God being well, forgetful of his covenant?
0: Yes. Um, there, this is important. And, and I think that one of the things that it's important to remember when we look at this, remember, um, when we look at this, is that this language here uh, is language of accommodation. Right? So uh, when it says God remembered, I I think it is reasonable for a reader to go, well, when I remember, it's because I have forgotten something. Mm -hmm. Remembrance for us is language we use to imply I I did not, I I had temporarily forgotten something, Mm -hmm. and now I'm either being reminded or I'm remembering, either because of something inside of me that's cueing that or something outside of me that's cueing that. The remembrance language that we find here could be confusing to a reader to go, Well, hold on. If God knows everything, then how did he forget this? And why is he remembering something that he had already promised to do? And I think that that's a very reasonable question. But we, and JT, jump in here if if I'm not making any sense, because I know we've talked about this before when dealing with revelation and remembrance. But this language here is language of accommodation, meaning God is speaking to us in a way that's intelligible to us. He's addressing us in ways that we can understand. Um, you know, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways for who knows the mind of our God and who could be mm-hmm. his counselor. Mm-hmm. We, God cannot describe to us in uh, the one-to-one correspondence the exact working of God's mind for we could not grasp it. We could not understand it. And so the language he uses— to his people and to the world to tell us about his actions and his knowledge of the world is language that is condescending in its communication. Not condescending in the spirit in which it's offered, but l- literally he has to lower his abil- uh, uh, the, the way he communicates about himself to an intelligible way for us to understand it. So it, has God forgotten his promises? No, this is language that's being used to remind us that God had made these covenant promises, and the groaning and the cries of Israel are a signifier that they have come to be awakened to their need in a palpable way, and now God is moving forward on the basis of what He had already promised. Mm-hmm. Is there anything there that's off?
2: No, I think you said that really well.
1: Yeah, I think a paraphrase would just be it's time. Like, sure. yeah, mm. he's now mm-hmm. going to he's now going to um, he's going to bring to bear the promises on their current situation.
0: Yes, and there is a sense in which the crying out of the people, I mean, we, we, we talked about this last episode, The ch- chapter 2 begins with Moses the baby crying uh, in the water, and it ends with the people of Israel crying out to God. There's mm-hmm. a little symmetry here and how mm-hmm. even just that, that passage flows, that we have Moses the baby crying, we have Israel the people crying out and groaning. And I do think it's important to remember that they are crying out and groaning because They are experiencing the trials and the afflictions and the hardships of life in exile, of life under Pharaoh's rule and reign and oppression. The very thing that Adam and Eve uh, gave into in the garden, which was to subvert God's kingdom and to try to bring it under the rule and reign of the serpent has happened again among the people of Israel, meaning they entered into the the life of Egypt and they now find themselves under the dominion of a serpent king. And yet God, as he promised in Genesis 3.15 and as he has been working through the lives of his people, is going to bring them out from that rule and reign and under and, and back into his own rule and reign and the place that he's going to entrust to them. Well, I think one of the things here that I want us to focus in on for the remainder of the show is just this idea of God remembering his covenant. uh, And then it specifies Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we talk about covenant, this is uh, a fairly significant um, biblical theme. Um, Some would suggest that covenant is the organizing structure of the narrative of Scripture, meaning that covenant is the way that we trace the the big picture story that the whole Bible is telling. Um, I would, that that would be typically the rubric I would use in thinking through the storyline of scripture would be the covenant of God. Um, so let's just start here. What is a covenant? Is this the first time that we've heard of a covenant? Has covenant language been used before? How is it a theme to the rest of the story of scripture? I mean, let's just, let's start there. What is a covenant?
2: I'd like to answer that question. Can I say one thing about crying just real quick, if you don't mind? I know know we're moving on to covenant, but something that I've just been thinking about, uh, because Kyle, in in that episode where we talked about crying out, I really, again, I learned from you guys as you were teaching about it. And One of the things that I just, this might be a bit more of like a pastoral devotional insight than like a theological one, but so often I hear churches, like if you're on Instagram and you're like scrolling through social media churches and it's like, we're going to build the kingdom of God or we're extending or expanding or I'm not trying to hate on that language I understand what we mean by that but I started thinking to myself man, when we look through the storyline of the Bible the time the times when God is most prepared I'm in a transition to covenant now like when, when God is either remembering or returning to or fulfilling his covenant isn't when God's people are crushing it and building the kingdom it's actually when they're crying out asking God to do it it's when it's when they crushed. they mm-hmm. yeah it's when they come to the point in exile of saying, we don't want to live like this anymore. God, remember your promises, come back to your people, be faithful to what you've told us. And that's when God does it. And I just think that's a good, uh, it it was a good reminder for me of, we don't have to be kind of the rah rah, you know, chest beating uh, churches that say, look, we are, look, we are fulfilling. We are the city on a hill. We are the kingdom of God in our city. Uh, That isn't what we see in the storyline of the Bible. We see the opposite. We see God's people in exile crying out saying, God, you made promises and we need you to fulfill them because that's all that's going to satisfy us. That's all that we want and need. And so it's because we're people living in exile. So Kyle, I, th- I think you said that really well. I would agree with you that the organizing theme of scripture, if you're looking at, if, if I was trying to teach somebody the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the things like the pillars that they need to get their hands on are covenants. We mm-hmm. could say there's a covenant in the garden uh, with Adam and Eve, a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abram and Sarah, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David, and a new covenant offered uh, in Jeremiah and Isaiah and ultimately fulfilled fulfilled, and implemented by Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. So those are the organizing big kind of plot lines of the storyline of the Bible. Now, there's all kinds of questions about how those covenants relate to each other. What is the relationship? Are they progressive? Are they uh, somehow different? And so there's lots of questions around that, which we'll probably get into at some point during these episodes. But before we get into that, just think, okay, if I want to know the storyline of the Bible, you have to familiarize yourself with this idea of covenant. And the way that we, that way that I would define covenant is it's a, it's a, it's a it's a promise but it's in some sense stronger than a promise promise can feel like Uh, it can be broken because it's made between Mm -hmm. two humans. God is so, he's he's obligating himself. He's intervening. He's coming to his people and saying, I obligate myself to act a certain way, to have a disposition towards you, to fulfill something on your behalf for you because of my covenantal love for you. So the exact definition that we use when we teach this is something like this, a, a promise in which God obligates himself to his people through divine initiative, God is breaking into human history to reveal himself and enter into a relationship with a promise to his people. And the promise that God has made so far to his people is we could make the case that God to Uh, Adam and Eve made a promise that one day there is going to be the seed of the woman who is going to come crush and destroy the head of the serpent and ultimately destroy Satan's sin and death forever. So one of the covenants that we're looking to be fulfilled by God is to send a seed of the woman to be the Messiah, to be the offspring of the woman who's going to to bring all of this death, chaos, destruction, and ultimately exile to an end. So that's why Genesis 4 to 11 is God's people keeping their eyes on the womb. They're looking for this covenant-keeping seed, son who's going to come and do exactly what God promised to Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis twelve one through 3, we also see God making a covenant with Abram and Sarai, and eventually Abraham and Sarah. And the covenant made there is that they are going to be a people, a nation, Mm -hmm. that is going to have more offspring than there is sand on the seashore or uh, stars in the sky. And ultimately, they're also going to have a son that's going to come and bless the nations, that's going to reign and rule forever. And so, what we're looking for—and and they're also, they're going to be, they're going to have a place. They're going to have a kingdom that is given to them. Abraham moves from Ur and comes to the place that God shows him and is ultimately going to be present with him. And so, so far in the storyline of the Bible, we're looking for the seed of the woman. We're looking for the son of Abraham, who's going to live with God in God's place forever. And that's not where God's people find themselves. This is kind of making that connection is they find themselves in exile, separated from God, not in the place that God has offered them, looking for the seed of the woman, though all of these Hebrew boys are being killed and they realize this does not feel like the kingdom and the the response the response to not living in the kingdom isn't
0: to build it it's to cry out for it and that's what we see them doing And I don't think it's insignificant. Yes, that's really good, JT. I I don't think it's insignificant that when it says God remembered his covenant, it begins with Abraham here. God remembered his Mm -hmm, covenant with Abraham. You know, there is a covenant with Adam and Eve. There is a covenant with Noah. But there's a sense in which for the rest of the story of the Bible, the kind of covenant that seems to reverberate most loudly is the covenant with Abraham. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the one here that it seems like when we're thinking of like, what is scripture trying to tell us? God is actively pursuing or moving forward on it is this covenant that he's made with Abraham with Isaac with Jacob and you might go well he did are those separate covenants he had one with Abraham one with Isaac one with Jacob no he had a covenant with Abraham that was a generational promise like it extended beyond Abraham and that was clear in the call in Genesis 12 if you want to go look at these passages that maybe speak specifically to this I would say the four chapters to look at to think through the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, those would be the big four chapters. If you're going, okay, I want to explore what is kind of the architecture of this covenant that is being recalled here to the audience of Scripture um, in Exodus chapter 2. I, that would be the one. And I think that's important because the principal cutting of that covenant in Genesis 15 is, has every mark of what's called a unilateral covenant. Now, mm-hmm. just to introduce this real quick, when we think about covenants, it seems like there are two dominant structures in covenant architecture. There's what we call unilateral covenants and bilateral covenants. Unilateral covenants are covenants in which one party obligates themselves to another party or parties in a way that doesn't presume any conditions on the other party, okay? That's unilateral. It's, it is it is really kind of a one-way road, so to speak. And uh, bilateral is where there seems to be some level of mutuality or mutual exchange in the covenant agreements. That's a bilateral covenant. Unit one by two. Unilateral versus bilateral. The covenant that's being called to attention here, the covenant that God is moving forward on in terms of the, this coming rescue, redemption, and deliverance of Israel, is a unilateral covenant. In Genesis fifteen, if you'll recall, and we've 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 gone through this story many times, both direct as we explore Genesis and indirectly as we've covered this topic over the past few years Genesis 15 is a unilateral covenant god puts abraham to sleep after he severed these sacrifices and there's a uh, he has a vision of a burning pot going between the severed sacrifices a fire and smoke which is going to factor in heavily, spoiler, um, to thinking through the story of Exodus and God's leading of his people. But this pillar or this uh, burning pot, fire and smoke going through the severed sacrifice is representing the presence of God. And so I do think it's significant for understanding everything else that comes in Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch to remember that God's redemption and deliverance of Israel was not conditional on what he wanted them to begin to look like and live like on the other side of that deliverance. It was rooted in the foundational, unbreakable promises that he had made to Abraham that were not conditional on Israel's obedience. Like I think it's just a good reminder because we're gonna when we get to the back half of Exodus and God starts telling His people this is how I want you to live, it's gonna be very tempting to start to believe that God's covenant love for Israel is conditional on their uh, their obedience to Him, but God's redemption and deliverance of Israel uh, is not conditional uh, on their obedience to Him. His deliverance was based out of a grace based covenant He had made with Abraham. Um, And I think that that shapes the way that we view what he calls them to after the deliverance. And that's why I think this particularly, these few verses, and it's going to come up again in Exodus six, it comes up right before the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, Mm -hmm. God is telling his people over and over and over again, I delivered you because of my grace, the promises I made to Abraham. Uh, And I think that's significant. I think it's very significant when we think about the flow of the story. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSB Bible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSB Bible.com to get your copy today. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life study Bibles for women and the Courage for Life study Bibles for men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Life courageforlifebible.com. .com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible.
2: Yeah, I don't want to take us too far. I mean, we're, we're doing a episode on Exodus chapter 2 here, but even thinking about the story that you just highlighted in Genesis 12 to 17, it's, it's such a strike. if you've read that passage before and you get to that part with the, you know, the—the the, the fire and the pot and the kettle kind of going through severed birds and blood. Like that's a strange story. If you're a modern kind of 21st century Western reader, you're like, wait a second. They took, he took birds and cut them in half and (laughs) there's blood everywhere. And, but for an ancient Near Eastern culture, this is a covenantal ceremony. The thing that is actually strange about it that you're highlighting here, Kyle, is that, Abraham's asleep. It's Mm -hmm. only God that goes through this this covenantal commitment and ceremony. He's the one who goes down. And what is being said there that we need our our readers to understand is that God is saying, I'm going to fulfill my covenantal obligations. And when you don't, I will suffer the consequences of death. That's right because that's what's hap- that's what's happened to the animals that have been severed I will pay the price of covenantal disobedience in blood I'm going to be faithful to my part of the covenant and when you're unfaithful I will be faithful and so let's just mm-hmm. jump forward a little bit to Matthew and kind of this new exodus that Matthew's going to offer for mm-hmm. us and present Jesus as a, a new Moses the very first sentence that he opens up his gospel with to again just make the point that that uh, uh the covenantal th- you know, theme of scripture is really the organizing principle. Mm-hmm. He says, and maybe in translation terms, this is the book of new beginnings. This is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Yeah, uh, New beginnings being Genesis. This is the genealogy. He's trying to say this mm-hmm. is the rebirth of, of, of the story. And he highlights the two two major covenants in the Old Testament, this Abrahamic covenant and a Davidic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant being, I'm going to pray, I'm going to, my. there's going to be a son who comes, who pays covenantal blood for us. And this is what Jesus says with his disciples in the upper room. And he's also going to be the king over his people, the son of David. So when you, you think about all the stories of the miracles uh, that Jesus performs, they're often crying out, Hosanna to the son of David or son of David, save us. Can you heal us? So God's people are understanding the covenantal themes here. And this is exactly what God's people in Exodus are doing. They're crying out to the covenantal God who keeps his promises. And so one last thing I'll say here is, you you know, the I I don't even know the reference, but there's a, um, people often misuse it. All all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That doesn't mean all the promises you want to be true for your life. It means these promises, (laughs) right? It's not like all of God's promises for my weight loss journey, or yes and amen in Jesus, or all of God's promises in my financial peace journey. You know, it's not that. It's what we're saying here is is Jesus is the one who we cry out to, who is the covenant-keeping God, who is the son of Abraham, who is the son of David, and who's this new Moses who's come to deliver and provide a new exodus for God's people. That's right.
1: Yeah, I think just to pull us all the way to the end of the story, um, if you are thinking about the way that uh, Revelation is written, there is a great deal of crying out in Revelation, but it is a different Mm -hmm. kind of crying out. Uh, The saints. And the elders and the four living creatures, everyone is gathered around the throne, crying out that exactly what God has said would come to pass has come to pass. Um, and there are a lot of ties in those scenes, specifically to Exodus and Genesis, and and these ideas. And so, um, and even you know, you think about in the um, in the New Testament where it says all creation groans uh, and, and cries out in expectation of the the new um, new creation. Um, it's all the same language. It's intentional. It's saying, Hey, the creation is waiting expectantly for God to do what God, only God can do. Um, and that's the story we'll see play out in Exodus. The the Israelites cannot free themselves. It will be some, Mm -hmm. it'll be a work that only God can do. And then you get to revelation and only God has done what only God can do. And it's, it's, it's cried out loudly from all who have witnessed it.
0: That's exactly right. And and I do think that this is an important point to note that when we think about, and and, and I'm floating this out there, this is, I'm workshopping this. So you guys tell me Mm -hmm. if you feel like this is uh, a problem, but- I think when we look at the Old Testament storyline and we think about the people of God's relationship to God, namely his blessed presence, and and I'm distinguishing his blessed presence from his general presence. God is omnipresent. Mm -hmm. He's present throughout the whole world. But there is a particular way that he invites his people into his blessed presence or his redemptive presence or the presence of his special or particular or saving grace. Mm -hmm. In the Old Testament, the fundamental rubric for understanding how am I participating participating or engaging in the presence of God, I think is filtered through the concept of covenant. That covenant participation is the primary way of thinking through how are Old Testament saints communing or fellowshipping with God. It's primarily through covenant participation. I think this is what, honestly, the back half of Exodus is trying to tell um, uh, the people of Israel is, listen, You are in God's covenant love. And if his presence is going to dwell in your midst, everything has to change. And I think that that's what the rest of the flow of the Old Testament storyline is about is, okay, how do we live in the presence of God in the midst of being broken people in a broken world as we wait for the coming Messiah King. Mm -hmm. Covenant Mm -hmm. participation seems to be the dominant theme. When you get to the New Testament, it's not that covenant diminishes. The covenant architecture is resoundingly there. JT just pointed out one way. it, it, It does become less explicitly named. That's indisputable. Covenant as a concept gets invoked less in the New Testament by name than it does in the Old Testament. Does that mean that the covenant has dissolved no, it just means that some of the way that the architecture of how people relate to God is changing. I think that has a lot to do with the Messiah who has come to fulfill all of the fundamental promises and prophecies that were entailed in that covenant. And I think through the gospel ministry, if you hear, if you hear one thing resoundingly clear, it's, it's probably not covenant, it's kingdom kingdom becomes the primary language of participation. You can think about Jesus' first call to the first disciples. It's not repent for the covenant of God has come. It's repent for the kingdom of God has come, right? This kingdom that had been promised – And then you get into the back half of the New Testament. Is covenant dissolved then? No. I mean, you certainly get strong reflection on covenant in Galatians. If you're looking for places to look for covenant in the rest of the New Testament beyond the Gospels, you're going to find it in uh, Galatians significantly, and you're going to find it in Hebrews significantly. You're going to find a lot of meditation on the concept of covenant in both of those passages. But outside of those two, it's not nearly as defined as you're going to find it across the Old Testament. And this is where I think, and this is my drum, and you guys know that I'm going to beat it, is... I think that what comes from covenant in the Old Testament as the mode of participation and in in relationship with God to kingdom in the gospel ministry is then after the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit, there is now union with Christ becomes the dominant theme for participation in the back half of the New Testament. And it's not that covenant is dissolved or kingdom is dissolved. It's that each one of them becomes a further unfolding of how we participate. God hears our groanings and our cries now. I'm not talking about the people of Israel then. I'm talking about us Mm -hmm. now. As children of God, because we are in God's covenant love, because we've been invited into his kingdom in Jesus Christ, the son of God, and by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. These were things that were longed for, in murky, shadowy ways through much of the story of God's people in the Old Testament, but now have been made clear in a way that's unique in our moment in the history of redemption, following the resurrection of Christ and the sending of the Spirit. I don't know, is that right to think about covenant this way? I think if you asked an Israelite, if you asked... A child of Abraham after the exodus from Egypt, because I'm under the impression that much of Israel has maybe forgotten about the covenant promises, or they believe that Yahweh has forgotten about them as they're enslaved in egypt right that, mm-hmm. that Is that the sense that you guys get from this? I, I feel like they have either forgotten them or they believe they have been forgotten. Is that wrong
1: no i think that's I think that's true. Um, I think even though there seems to have been a preservation of the ideas, you know, like right. Moses seems to have an awareness. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though he's raised in the house of Pharaoh, he seems to have had enough contact with his own people to understand these these ideas. Sure. Um, but I, I would say it's like they have head knowledge, but they don't have experiential mm-hmm. knowledge would probably be the way that they're feeling about things at this point. Yeah. Um, because in many ways, their time in Egypt has been like the frog in the pot that this slowly... Coming to a boil, yeah. and so you know this is the generation who's in the boiling water, yeah. and um, so you know when that's the case, you don't you don't um, grow forgetful of your spiritual heritage um, all in one instance. It, it it goes away gradually, and so I think that's where we find them, and I think it's understandable, you know, that that's that's what this uh, generation is facing, and so there will be. Uh, an act of um, recovery that will happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they will they will recover that heritage. And I think in many uh, ways, that's what the Mosaic Covenant is doing. Yeah. Um, I know we're not talking about the Mosaic Covenant right now, but the Mosaic Covenant, I think people see it as, hey, brand new idea here. Here's 10 things that you should really pay attention to. And it's not brand new. Um, it's in many ways, um, just a codifying of ideas that they would have already known were were true of the moral law of God. And we've yeah. seen hints of that even in the in the pages leading up to, to where it's actually spoken from Sinai. I don't think anyone was standing at the foot of Sinai going, hang on, hang on, God doesn't want us to take human life. You know, th- that was not a new idea there. Wait a minute, we're only supposed to worship God. Sure. You know, it's just that they've been living somewhere where these things have, have not been the ecosystem. That's certainly the, the the Ten Commandments are of no concern to the Egyptians. Yeah. They've been in many ways living the opposite of them. So. I do think that the, the covenants are, um, that people have an awareness. I think you even see back in Genesis when, when Cain and Abel have the scene where they offer their sacrifices and one sacrifice is found to be acceptable and the other is not, that there's an understanding of how God is to be approached even before some of these covenant ideas have been squarely placed in the text for us. That's right. So, yeah, and I think the order matters. You know, the there's a reason that we are given a clear articulation of the Abrahamic covenant before we hear a clear articulation of the Mosaic covenant.
0: That's right. Uh, God
1: does not tell His people, "You must, uh, you must be holy as I am holy." Um, And here's how, when they are completely unable to do that, like you know, as Romans says, you know, or uh, when Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And God doesn't ask of His own children, hey, when you're in hard slavery Mm -hmm. in Egypt, that you would you would um, fulfill my my. You're part of my
0: covenant. Jen, JT, I think you had something you wanted to say. I don't want to cut you off because I've been talking a lot here. It was
2: going to be entirely unserious, but I'll say it. Uh, (laughs) I thought Jen Jen was going to say, speaking of frogs and boils, let's talk about the plagues. (laughs) Well,
0: we're we're going to get there. We will. We're going to get there. Jen, you just made, I think, what is a really important point to remember when we think about not, uh, like, it, it is easy to forget the reception of the Pentateuch, and the storied form in which we have received it canonically. Like so Big words uh, Kyle. I know. Okay, so I'm just saying like what you said a minute ago, you said it's important to remember that the story of Abraham, the covenant with Abraham and the mm-hmm. tale, the telling of that narrative comes in the story prior to the Mosaic covenant. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the things that it's being called to our attention right here is Mm -hmm. that like, hey, the covenant that I made, I'm remembering the covenant Mm -hmm. I made with Abraham. I want you to also reader, listener, Mm -hmm. audience, post Exodus Israelite to remember before we get to any of this other stuff that's coming up, Mm -hmm. any of Moses's other retelling of what happened after he fled and when he ended up out in uh, Midian and he's tending his flocks in the burning bush and Sinai before any of that other stuff. I want you to remember that covenant I made with Abraham. I think that's really important when you think not just about the concept of these covenants, but the chronology of them. When Mm -hmm. do they happen is significant. Mm -hmm. And it is important that the Bible is telling us, hey, before I tell you about these other things, this covenant with Moses, I want you to remember this is done with the covenant with Abraham in the rear view mirror. It is with reference to that. And I think that's really significant, especially when we get to thinking through some of the details of what the covenant with Moses entails and what it means for the rest of the story.
1: Question? Yeah. I know that many people would say that there is at least a prototypical covenant of works that shows up in the garden. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? So basically God says, you know, I've given you all of these <laughs> things. Don't, are you like, you don't want to go there? And it no,
0: no, 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 no. It's just like, this is a, this is a I big know. one. Let's talk about I it. I mean, I'm, we're I'm going Presbyterian on us sure, at this yeah. point.
1: Yeah. But so like, you know, God says, hey, here's how you live my way in my world is what he says to Adam and sure. Eve in Genesis. And they say, you know what? We would rather do things our way. Uh, mm. And he immediately comes in with, okay, there's, I am going to save you anyway. Um, And and you you get the Proto-Evangelion, you get the, you know, crush the serpent's head. Um, And so then when um, we get the reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant, I'm skipping the Noahic for now. So you get the the Abrahamic covenant then is like a reiteration or an expansion of the idea Uh that we see introduced uh, in the garden of, hey, there's salvation for you. And and this is what it's gonna look like. It's gonna come through one man, great nation. And the kingdom idea comes into play. Well, then it's interesting to me that when we get to Exodus 19 and God is preparing to give um, the the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of works is going to show up again. It's gonna be like, if you obey me, there will be blessings. If you disobey me, there will be cursing. There will be consequences, negative consequences. And then uh, right before he gives it, he says in Exodus nineteen six, I think it is. He says, right. I will make of you a kingdom and priests. So he brings in the kingdom language. And I actually think that language is the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's already said to Abraham. It's another way of saying the same thing um, and that they'll reign and rule. And it's also uh, it's also the same language of image bearing that was given in the garden of this is what your purpose is, right? Uh, and so then you see all the way in Revelation, what are they saying? Oh, he's done it. It's in Revelation one, it's further on in Revelation. He says, he has made us a kingdom and priests, but he hasn't just done it with uh, Israel. He's done it to the ends of the earth. So, I just said a whole bunch of things at once, but I guess my question would be how how um how compelling do you find the organizational idea of really, there's just two covenants?
0: Hmm. Are you at uh, the well, Covenant of
1: Works and the Covenant of Grace?
0: Yeah. JT, I think you and I, I don't know where, where we're at on this. Um, I feel like we've talked about this before. I think mm-hmm. in Genesis maybe, or maybe it was something else when we talked through Covenants. Um all right, so like without I mean, this is this could be a whole season where we explore covenants. My general sense is that there is a covenant that precedes all covenants that we find out in the story of the Bible. Here we I mean, go. And, and, and this is called the pactum salutis.
2: Let's go. Or
0: the, or the eternal covenant or the covenant of grace, which is, uh, this is, I think, what is being reflected in passages like Ephesians one, even as he chose us in him before the yeah. foundation. No, of the I'm world. in on this. Yes. And this is a tra- not, I don't want to say reform because the reform view is not monolithic. There are divergent views when it comes to covenant. And this is one of those times where we need to alert the audience because we might be on the precipice of meaningful, <laughs> robust dialogue with one another. But even if we aren't, even if we all agreed on this, not all Christians agree about covenant, and that's okay. Just want yeah. to be super clear about that. This is not a a breaking fellowship kind of issue it's not even monolithic and we are dealing with some high octane nuclear grade stuff when it comes to dealing with pactum salutis but when we think about this i'm of the i'm of the opinion based off of what i can see in scripture that there are two fundamental profiles of covenant that get implemented at two say. different times there is a covenant of grace that i do mm-hmm. believe begins if you can say it that way before time exists in the eternal, delighting fellowship of God by which he makes a covenant to save for himself a people. And I think this is reflected in the doctrines of predestination and election specifically. I think that covenant... And and you you really
2: mean, when you say in himself, you mean a Trinitarian covenant, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Mm -hmm. Spirit covenant together Mm -hmm. to act and to be Father, Son, and Spirit in covenantal history.
0: Yes, in relationship to a defined people. Exactly. Yes, JT, that's a good note. So that covenant of grace... And then I think there is a covenant of works profile that is implemented in the garden. But mm-hmm. I will say, I think the rhythm and dynamic of the entire story of how these covenants work together is covenants of works always operate as a subplot under the banner or on the foundation, depending on how you look at it, of the covenant of grace. Meaning, I want you a- to
1: talk more about this because this is something you guys have really helped me with. I'm like, I don't understand how to fit like the Mosaic covenant in if the Abrahamic covenant is constantly in play. So talk about that.
0: Well, I'm not sure that we agree, we all agree on it, but I'll tell you what I think about it. Um, is it the covenant of grace is the operative foundation for yeah. covenant of work stipulations. And I, I think this is a difference between how God uh, brings his people into himself and how he invites them to experience what it means to live in his presence. Meaning. I don't think that Abraham that that Adam and Eve were subject to the spiritual death that their rebellion genuinely merited and I don't think that's because God changed his mind from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis the end of Genesis 3. I think they do not experience the full wrath of their of what their spiritual rebellion deserves in the garden because they were standing on a covenant of grace that preceded them. Now, did they experience real material consequences? Yes. I think they broke a covenant of works that was established in the garden, and the sub- uh, the uh, consequence of that, namely, was exile, but there are a number of consequences that are entailed in that. I think this is also how the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of Moses works. The, the covenant of Abraham is a rearticulation of something that far precedes Abraham, certainly uh, precedes the creation of the world. It is a unveiling of the covenant of grace within the scope of redemptive history, but it's not the birthing of a new idea idea, certainly not in the mind of God. And I think the covenant of Moses functions as a subplot or subtext under the covenant of grace. Meaning, I don't think the covenant of Moses is telling Israel, you will only be my people if you obey me. I think the covenant of Moses is saying, you are my people. And in this covenant, if you obey me, you'll experience more of the good truth, beauty, and wisdom that I have for you in the life of this broken world. And if you disobey me, you'll experience less of that. And there will be consequences and curses entailed in that. I think Ultimately, Jesus fulfills the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, but we still as believers, this side of the resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit are operating. Again, I I sound like a broken record here. The the two paradigms of covenant of grace and covenant works are translated to the rest of the New Testament in terms of the difference between uh, our union and communion, our union with Christ and our communion with God.
1: Can I give a simple uh, illustration that I think helps me understand this? Um, sure. it, it is like as, a, as an earthly parent, we understand um, you're going to be my kid no matter what. That's right. Um, But if you live in my home, we have some rules about how we can live at peace. You can live at peace with me and with your siblings, right? And here's what these rules are. Um, You're going to break these rules and there's going to be consequences, but you're not going to stop being my child because you've broken these rules. And and these rules are actually an expression of grace because they're training you into what it means to be um, what you are meant to be. They're bringing you to maturity. And so that is the way that I think I would probably try to simplify the idea of the relationship between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. Um, We pit great works and grace against each other. We've talked about this a ton on, you know, on the the podcast. And this is why I think this is a better way to understand it, because the covenant of works then is actually a gracious act from a loving God who shows his children um, the right way to live. Um, And and when they disobey it, it doesn't cancel the covenant of grace, but it does mean that there will be real consequences for them. And one of those consequences is exile?
2: Yeah, I, I think we actually you are kind of in lockstep here. I don't. There's nothing that I would really change from anything you guys have said. Maybe just one kind of uh help. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe let me say two things real quick. Maybe they're not helpful. But if you're listening to this, you're like, man, this is a lot. Because Kyle, you could have just written a book on like the Pactum Salutis and Covenant of <laughs> Like what you just said is so good. But it, if you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it or have been familiarized with it, that that can be like, wait a second, what just happened? Uh, I, I live in Denver, Colorado, and. In parts of Denver, if you're further away from the mountains, you can see the foothills and then the next range of mountains, the next range all the way up to the 14ers. If you're far enough away, if you live where I live, I live in Arvada and I'm closer to the mountains, I can only see the foothills because I'm so close mm-hmm. to that first range of mountains. But I know the next ones are there. And maybe think of covenants that way, depending oh, yeah, on where you're good. situated. Oh, there's, yeah. Y- uh. you-, you can only see that first hill, but if you're further away, you can see all the hills. Uh, and you can, or if you're in a valley, you can see the last one or the next one. So you might be at the Noahic covenant and you can see what God promised to, uh, Adam and Eve but and you can see what God's promising to you but you're in the valley and so what we have the opportunity as new covenant believers is seeing all the kind of the peaks and valleys that you couldn't see when you were in redemptive history when you were kind of traversing through the mountains mm-hmm. so to speak so there's these ups and downs of these progressive covenants if that does that make sense is that a helpful image
0: I think that's really good yeah
2: I'm, I'm writing it down right now and
1: I may or may <laughs> not gonna, ask your permission to use it, steal it.
0: In, <laughs> in something yeah. that I'm working on so
1: yeah. uh. so so, yeah, but so my main question, JT, is what's the temperature in Colorado <laughs> while you're living? It's about at these seventy-two mountains. right yeah, now.
2: Always, yeah, we live in yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we live in air conditioning country because we don't need it. We just have it. It's okay. called being outside. <laughs> uh, and one last thing, I would say that I think can be that I took me a long time to grasp, uh, even as I was going through seminary, is it's easy to think. And again, maybe this is. Uh, I want to be real simple here, if I can. I used to think covenant of works, Old Testament; covenant of mm-hmm. grace, New Testament. Yeah. Uh, Or God, Old Testament, makes me follow the law. God, New Testament, offers me grace. Grace. This is a really Mm -hmm. unhelpful way to read the Bible because I want you to see how gracious God is being here. God Mm -hmm. is always gracious. There is gospel, there is euangelion in the Old Testament. We can think mm-hmm. well. The Pharisees didn't seem to think so. Well, it's because they didn't read the Old Testament very well. They didn't mm-hmm. understand right. God's kindness and grace and mercy to them. So even thinking about this Exodus story that we're going to have the opportunity to journey with our listeners through this season, is we can see the gospel here in Exodus. He liberates a people before mm-hmm. he calls them to walk in holiness. That's this, right. So the Kyle had a helpful word of chronology here. He is liberating a people, calling a people to himself before he gives them this mosaic covenant of walking mm-hmm. in holiness and Jesus is saying something similar in Matthew chapter five, as as Matthew uh, is telling the story of deliverance of God's people through a new deliverer, and then he then he offers the Sermon on the Mount to them. And so mm-hmm. we need to remember the the chronology of these covenants matter. God is saving a people for Himself so that they would delight in Him by being obedient to His law. So in Exodus, you could even say justification comes and then sanctification
0: comes. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, this is right. This is good. I mean, we went way over the time that we set for this episode, but, uh, but uh, I hope for the listener, it's true. Uh, but uh, hopefully for the listener, that was really, really, uh, helpful. And if it wasn't, then we're sorry. (laughs) Tune in (laughs) next time for more unhelpful discussions. Yeah. No, but I do think it, it is a really important question and I'm glad we're exploring it. The, the big idea that we need you to see here just to wrap this up is These are just a few verses, but what's being invoked here, covenant, is not only something that's crucial for everything that comes before this account, it's crucial for everything that comes after this account. And it is maybe one of the most significant, if not the most significant, biblical theme or, or structure for the whole story of the Bible. So spending an hour thinking about it is worthwhile indeed if we want to understand the whole story of the Bible. On the next episode, we're going to look at the call of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, dealing with the burning bush and just about holy calls throughout Scripture as a theme. It's not the only one, and they are all significant. If you want to find Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, You may have heard about the great resources or products earlier in the show that we've talked about. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to our sponsor's webpage or on the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, and products that we vet and we believe in. Um, we want to check uh, t- uh, tell you to check out some of our sister shows. If you haven't uh, checked out Confronting Christianity with Rebecca McLaughlin or Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson or Tiny Theologians or Family Discipleship, uh, you should go check out those podcasts. They're incredible resources. We're really glad to get to be on the same network with these great shows. Uh, and uh, we, we look forward to seeing some of you guys at our live recording at the Gospel Coalition uh, right now. It's, when this podcast releases, we will be there. And so we hope that we get to see some of you there. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.